For those of you who aren't aware, Rebecca Veldum is the daughter of Lance and Megan Veldum, who were uh, uh, at our church as college students, uh, met, the, met each other here, got married here, and uh, then have been around the Midwest. And it really, in some ways, that's what we are about here at, at Crossroad, right? We're making disciples here in Ames, not so that we can grow bigger, so to speak, but so that we can help more and more people around both the Midwest and the United States, as well as the world, uh, to know Christ, to walk with Him, and to experience the joy of walking with Christ. And so um, we've said for years, reaching aims to reach the world, right? And that's, that's what we're about, and we're excited about the things that are going on in, in regard to that, even as we face many challenges, right, that we, that we, we see around us. We want to be anchored in making disciples, and in a couple of weeks we're going to be, as a, as a church, as, a, as members of our church, gathered together, kind of considering uh, pastoral leadership decisions. We, we know we need more care, especially as we come out of COVID, more care of people, and we want to encourage that. We also want to encourage core groups. Uh, women, you have, uh, uh, I'm sure we'll talk about it at the end of the service as well, but you have a retreat coming up to talk about core groups, and then men, uh, November 13th, we're talking about it as well. So, and we also want to encourage your love for one another. We realize, hey, that one of the key things we need is to love one another during this time and to encourage one another. Um, and so that's actually one of the goals that Paul has in Ephesians chapter 1, is that we would know God in order to love others. And he spends a lot of time on, on us knowing God. In fact, if you read through Ephesians, in the first three chapters, there are no imperatives. What we mean is there's no commands. There's no do this or do that in Ephesians 1 through 3. It isn't until you get to Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 that Paul's like, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. It, there's a, but, he, but he lays this groundwork of this is who you are in Christ that's so essential for us as we walk through our lives. And um, and that's why we find ourselves in this prayer in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 and following, because he wants them to be able to know their identity in Christ and be able to live that out first and foremost. Not so much as, uh, this is what I need to do, but this is who I am. And he understands it's difficult. He understands it's hard. And so um, I used this a few weeks ago to talk about the tensions we feel in relationships, and I asked Caleb to join me back up here. So Caleb, come on up, and uh, we're just going to illustrate this once again, right? Um, the, the, the tension we have in, in holding our identity based on performance. So I'm going to give you the small ring, right. okay? I got the big ring here. Now let's, you know, we got to be careful here, so put more than one finger around it, okay? Yeah, there you go. Okay, so, so see how, can we pull? How far can we pull here? So that's, that's probably good enough right there. Okay, so there's a lot of tension on this, right? And when we're, we're basing our identity off our performance, we, we feel under tension all the time because our desires fight us. Yeah, have you ever noticed that? You're like, you wake up in the morning like, I want to do this because I want to do it. And then halfway through your day, I don't like, I want to do something else. And like, how far can I pull Caleb, right? I'm like trying to pull him. Like, so I have more weight. I can pull him if I really wanted to. 
maybe, but it would probably break first. This is a strong thing. But the problem is, is that sin has a greater pull in our lives than our control of ourselves does. You get that? We're, we're not made to control ourselves. We're not made to live for ourselves. We're made to live for something else. And sin, I'm making Caleb sin, not me. Sin, sin has more pull in our lives. It can, it can fight us as all day long. And if we don't understand who we are in Christ, then we are constantly at, at intention with our own desires. We, we don't have that rest in Christ that we need to have. We don't have that sense of anchor. Thank you, Caleb. You did a good job. That wasn't very hard, was it? Give Caleb a hands. And so... Paul is, is saying, I, I told, this is who you are in Christ. This is the riches, the, the, the spiritual blessings you have in Christ. But he doesn't stop there by just telling them that. He says, I'm praying that you get that, right? And, and why? Because it's not just a matter of intellectually understanding it. It's, it's spiritually uh, believing it and, and letting it soak into our souls, so to speak. So how, how does that work? Well, let's just look at what it says here. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 15 and following, as he, as he again, he's, his goal here is to kind of lay out a, not just that we understand what God has done for us and the anchors to our souls that we have, but how we experience those, how we, how we, how we grasp them. And so he says this in verse 15, for this reason, no, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, I <laughs> make sure I'm in the right spot. For this reason, because I have heard of the faith of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. So he's he's saying, I know you believed in Christ and I know you love the saints. I know both of those are true, but I'm still writing. Why? Because I want you to know it fully in a sense. I do not cease to give thanks to you for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so again, here he lists three things that he wants you to know, okay? So um, here's, the, here's the text again, and I'm just going to highlight, right? He says, I'm praying, right, that the, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, so this is the kind of two ways of talking about God. One, God is, the fa- God is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, so he's the father of the father-son relationship between God and God the Son, but he also calls him the father of glory. That is, that he's, he's, he's not just interested in, you, you could say, well, he's the glorious father. That is, he's glorious, but I don't think that's the emphasis here, actually. The, fa- the emphasis here is, is he is passing on glory. He's passing out glory. He's, he's getting glory out there. He's, he's making it not just for himself, but for others. Okay? 
And, and that's why you say, uh, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. Not, not God's knowledge of himself, okay? But our knowledge of him. And it's not the word for just intellectual knowledge. It's the word for relational knowledge. It's saying, I, I want you to know fully, to experience God. I don't want you to just know, okay, I can, I can even memorize Ephesians 1, 3 through, through 14, and I can know it. I can know the words. He's saying, I want you to be able to experience it. How? Through God giving us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in order that our, uh, the eyes of our hearts be enlightened, right? So God wants to, to help our, not just our eyes to see words on a page, but our hearts to see the reality of who God is in our lives. Why? Because Paul knows that as we go through life, just as we talked about here, the tensions of our lives cause us to not see God, but to see our problems, to see our desires, to see the issues we face in our world, to see the shame we experience in our lives. And rather than see God and who he is and what he's doing, we instead see, wow, mountain, wow, valley, wow, hardship. This seems impossible. This seems too difficult. This seems um, like, like I, can't, I can't possibly get through this. And we no longer see the God who made us, the God who loves us. We instead wonder where he's at. Have you ever been there? You're like going through life and you're like struggling and struggling and you're like, where is God in all of this? What is God doing? I, I don't understand why he's letting this happen or that happen. And we live there, Paul knows, because he knows the human condition way too often. So here, what's interesting here is Paul is not saying, hey, you better do X, Y, and Z if you want to get out of that condition. You know what I mean? What he's saying is, I pray that God will help you with this by giving you, here he's, he's already said we have the Holy Spirit, we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, but that that Spirit would act in our lives to open our eyes to see. Again, this is, Paul is radically God-oriented as he thinks about our relationship with God. He's not saying, you better, you, better, if, you better straighten your life out. If you would just straighten your life out, then you would see how God is working in your life. He doesn't say that. But isn't that how we op- operate sometimes, right? We run into difficulties, run into problems. We're like, well, I better turn over a new life because I don't see how God is working and I know I better, I better do X, Y, and Z. Paul doesn't go there. He just says, I'm praying for you that God would do something that you can't do on your own. That he would help you to see in the midst of life rather than escaping life and escaping the problems and finally getting everything correct in the midst of life that God would help you to see him, to know him. 
And he lists off here three things about God that we need to know in order to walk in that full knowledge of him, that relational knowledge of him. He says, you may know what is the hope to which you are, he has called you, okay? Then two, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And three, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? So he lists off three things. It's not unusual if God is a trinity for three things <laughs> that we need to know. It's also why preachers usually have three points, right? Just because we like to follow the Bible. No, just, no, just the way. But we just like to follow the text in this case. So there, there are three things that we're going to look at this morning that help us to have that full knowledge of God. And it's not, what I, my prayer is the idea, the big idea that I want to get to is that I'm praying that you may find the anchor to your soul, knowing how God relates to you, knowing what God is doing in your life, knowing that you can have this relationship with God regardless of the circumstances of your life. But to back up here in just a second, there's three things we're going to look at to help you understand that, all right? And in reality, he, if you notice the, the text, he doesn't then switch off of his prayer and like, okay, now that I've prayed, let's talk about this. He just keeps going. We've already looked at chapter 2, right? Verse 1, and you being dead in, the trust, in your trespasses and sins. So the reason why is because, again, because he's praying this, the Spirit is using him to write Ephesians. The Spirit is actually answering his prayer, in a sense, even as he prayed it. So he talks about these three things, and then the Spirit moves him to talk about those three, three things. And we get Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, talking about what is the immeasurable greatness of power toward us who believe, taking us from death to life. Okay, in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And then in Ephesians 3, 1 through 13, he, he's talking about what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. He's talking about there's some riches here that you need to understand. And he doesn't just make that phrase. He then, in, in 13 verses, he talks about it. What does it mean? And then the hope that we have in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, he talks about this hope that we have gone, we are no longer separated far off from God, but we are brought near by the blood of Christ, the hope that we have. And so Paul is then, after all of that, he then prays again that we would know God's love for us. And then he talks to us about, okay, now that you have this calling, now that you understand what God is doing, now do this, okay? But I want, my prayer for you this morning is that you may find that anchor, that you may experience that anchor to your soul as you consider the greatness of who God is and how he is operating in your world so that you can have that relational knowledge of God regardless of your circumstances. So let's look at point number one, the hope of your calling. The hope of your calling. And he, he just says here, uh, the ESV translates it this way, again, i got to find the phrase again, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. The emphasis here, again, throughout these, is not, is not initially what we need to do or what we need to have. The emphasis is on what he is doing. So the emphasis in the phrase is on his calling, okay? That is... Do you understand the calling that you have and the hope that it gives you? 
In Ephesians chapter 4, he talks about it again. He says, you know, because of the calling which you have, I want you to walk worthy of that calling which you have. And then he goes on to say again in verse 4 of chapter 4, he says, you have one hope to which you are called. This is hope and calling go together. But what is this calling? It's the, again, it's repeated throughout Scripture in various places. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1 says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling... Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He's saying God is calling us out of darkness into his marvelous light, not just to say okay, but he's calling us ultimately to heaven. We have this calling to not just live this life and then die, but he's actually calling us to himself, calling us to be with him forever. Titus 2.13 puts it this way, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we have this calling that we're called to that includes this hope of Christ returning for us and welcoming us to himself. Parents understand this in a sense. It's, you know, you get the idea of calling your kids for dinner. We got sick of screaming in our house, so we, we just have a bell, you know, and we ring the bell and it gets almost everybody you still have to send somebody downstairs if the tv is on downstairs you know so it's like what's the point of the bell well because i don't really like to yell so we're ringing the bell what because we're trying to call people together right actually that's the meaning of church in greek ecclesia is a called out assembly okay we're called out we have this purpose we're we're coming together to do something so so when we talk about calling, sometimes they think, well, pastors have calls, right? They have calls, and, and to an extent that's, that's true, but that's not, most of the time in Scripture, the calling that's referred to is not like that kind of calling. It's just a calling we all have, that we're called out of sin and death and destruction into His kingdom, being part of His kingdom now. And so there's a sense in which all of your life is your calling. It's not saying, okay, I've got this calling to do this job, or I've got this calling to do this over there. That might be a part of your calling. Really, it's saying all the circumstances of your life, from, from before you were saved to, to whenever you die, they're, they're a part of this process that God is using to call you to himself and to use you as part of what he is doing in the world. So, when you look at your life, you might think, well, it's random, you know, like, my parents didn't even want me to be born, you know, or, man, I, I got this job, but it, I, it's definitely what I didn't go to college for, you know, I don't know how I ended up here, or, what am I doing in Ames, Iowa? For Pete's sake, there's plenty of other places I could live, what am I doing here? They're all part of God's calling in your life. That he is doing something in and through you right now, bringing you to himself and then using you where you're at to help others to, to realize how great God is and what he is doing in the world. He is calling out a people to his name from every tribe and tongue and nation. And, and we're a part of that process. And that's why... It's a hope, because it's not just 
right now, it's something that's not completed yet, but it will be. As Romans chapter 8, verse 30 puts it, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. There's no difference between the ones that he predestined. It's the same group that you predestined, that you also gets called, that also gets justified, that also gets glorified. It's the same group. So there's this process that God is, is doing in our lives if we're trusting in Christ. Here's another verse for Thessalonians 2, verse 12. We ex- Again, Paul's talking to the Thessalonians, and he says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. What this means is that you have a a new destiny. You have a new direction. And this calling on your life means it's, it's, it's a part of every day of your life. It's not as if God calls you one day and it's like, well, forget about him. I've called him. I'm going to wait. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, I forgot about this guy. I better get, get him here. Get him to heaven. No. God is intimately involved in the details of your life. Now, can you, can you see how all the time? No. But the point is, is that he is at work. And this is why we have hope. We have hope because he is ultimately at work in our lives. You know, we often have live stream problems. You get here to church, and not everything works out immediately, you know? What I'm, when, I, when I'm working through that, if I'm in the right attitude, sometimes I'm like, ah, you know? But if I'm in the right attitude, I have hope. Not that I'm going to solve all the problems, because a lot of times you're like, I don't know what's going wrong. But, but because... As you go, day by day, you seek to do what you think you need to do and what God wants you to do. What you have is not a hope in yourself. You have a hope that he is involved in the details of your life. You see the difference? If you go through life hoping in your performance, like, I better figure out the things that I need to do. I better figure out what's right here. I better figure out how to do this and how to drum up the energy. I'm tired. I don't. And we, we focus on our performance and we don't focus on his calling. Then we, we quickly run out of hope in ourselves, right? We stop hoping in ourselves because I'm not smart enough a lot of times. I'm not quick enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not articulate enough. I can't make my life happen. But if he is at work in my life, then in a sense, it doesn't matter how good I am, how smart I am, how quick I am, because he is calling me to himself. And my hope is in his calling not in my performance. You know, sometimes we, we, we settle for identities as Christians. We settle for the identity of being against things more than the identity of being for things. Can I just use the illustration of abortion? If, if you believe that God makes life, then you believe that he's in control of life and that you should, that abortion is wrong. 
It's murder. But as, as believers, our identity is not in what we believe to be right. Our identity is in God himself. And to, just, it's, it's a nuance, but it's important. If, if I'm for, what I'm for is a God of hope and people experiencing a God of hope. People experiencing the God of life, the, the God that can make life happen and joy happen and peace happen, even in difficult circumstances. So I'm not so much against abortion as I'm for people who are in difficult circumstances experiencing God at work in their lives. Experiencing God moving in their lives and them ex- ex- doing that by faith, believing that God can handle even a situation where, man, I didn't expect this pregnancy and I don't really want this baby, but I believe that God is a God of life and he controls life and I'm going to see what God can do here in this situation. That's what I'm for. We want people to experience God and his calling in their lives. You know, because again, if we're only for certain things, then we think we need majority power, right? Like, we need to get our side to win in order for life to go right. Like, we need the most votes, or we need the most people, or we need the most... You realize that Jesus consistently talked about the kingdom as a mustard seed, as small, as, as something that is insignificant in the world's eyes. And yet, he does something amazing with it because, why? He is the God of life. He is the God of power. And so, as we, as we go through life, our hope is not in winning elections. It's not in getting, getting the perfect job. It's not even in getting the perfect life. Our hope is in his calling that he is at work in all the details of our lives. He is moving in the midst of our lives. He is involved in what is going on in our lives. Can I ask you a question? What are you, what are you worried about this, this morning? Now, some of you may have few worries. You're like, I don't have a lot going on, I just, I, well, but there's this one thing. Some of you have several worries when I ask you what you're worried about. Well, what am I not worried about? (laughs) Paul is saying here that when we know his calling on our lives, we have hope. That the worries of our lives, even if they go bad, it doesn't matter because his call is still on our lives. Good can happen. Why? Because he is involved. We aren't operating on our own resources. We aren't living lives based on us. He is at work. You say, well, I don't see him sometimes. You know what? Some of the greatest times of God's working are when you can't see him. Why? Because he's an invisible God. When he goes under the radar, that's when he's really at work. And you have to trust that. You have to believe that. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's praying that you can believe this. 
that in the midst of your life, as you go through life, that you would understand his calling. He is calling you to himself, and therefore you have hope in any circumstance, in anything that's going on. Why? Because he is not leaving you alone. Those he calls, he glorifies. That's why Paul ends Romans chapter 15, verse 13. He ends the whole book, in a sense, by saying, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Hope is in short supply in our world. We look around and we think, well, that can't go right. That's headed the wrong direction. What's going to happen over here? I don't care. If he has called you, if he is at work, he is the God of hope. We can abound in hope. We can abound in hope for our jobs. We can abound in hope for our children. We can abound in hope for ourselves. Why? Because he has called us. His calling is at work in our lives. And, that we, and so we hope in that. And then he's going to go on and talk about what that means in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, but we can't talk about that this morning. So we're going to move on to the riches of your inheritance in the saints. What are the riches? And I, I phrased it wrong here, actually, because I was going off of my own memory. But it's actually the riches of his inheritance in the saints. And that's actually a key difference. Because, okay, so what are the riches that he's talking about here? And there's, there's something that's key here to think about, to understand that riches, that in, in their world, riches were different. When we talk about being rich today, we, we often talk about our assets and our bank accounts, right? Like if you're rich, you have a certain amount of money in the bank. That's what is defined as rich a lot of times. Well, in in those days, there was such a dichotomy between those who were truly wealthy and those who were not. There was not really a middle class in the Roman Empire. You were either wealthy or you weren't. So riches were not about the money you had in the bank. The riches really were who you were connected to. Does that make sense? Like, if you were rich, it wasn't because, you know, like, okay, yeah, I've got $10,000 in the bank. The riches were, yeah, I've got this patron, and he said I could do this and have these resources to get this done. And they were like, yep, you got those. You know, that's, that's the way it worked back then. I, I realize we're middle class, mostly in America. We think of money in the bank. We think of assets like our homes and our cars and maybe some properties we have. But that is not how they were thinking when they thought of riches and it's especially emphasized here because you see it, the riches of his inheritance in the saints, it's almost like he's saying again, this is not only is God at work in our calling, God, God is, since he's called out this, this people to his name, uh, he, this is God's inheritance, is these people that he's called to himself. And he's saying, I want you to understand the riches that are there in those people is actually, and it's actually backed up in Colossians chapter 1 verse 27. Paul's talking to the Colossians. He says, To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the mystery is that Christ is in us. This is something that we, was not revealed before Christ came. 
but the riches are the Gentiles, and the Gentiles being a part of this. And that's actually what he talks about in Ephesians as well. And so what he's saying is here is that the riches we have of, 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 of being now connected to God and knowing his inheritance is we have, in a sense, all these believers that are now family with us. Can I make this illustration of riches then in that sense? As parents, we know this, but I have the, the fortunate blessing of having seven children, right? And what it adds, okay, is richness to the family, right? Because why? There's so many different personalities. Some, some of my kids are really snide, you know what I mean? They're just a little sarcastic. I won't name names, Ella, but... Uh, <laughs> But they can bring a lot of sarcasm to the table. Some of my kids, they, they just, they're into whatever they're into, and they're, they're, they got stories they want to tell. Some of my kids, they just want to sit back, observe all the action, and make, you know, just these little comments on the side, you know? This, this, is, this is riches. Why? Because we just get to interact together, and we get to experience different personalities. God didn't make us all one personality. Aren't you happy for that, Right? We're all a little different, brings a little spice to life. And what's amazing here is that Paul is saying, I want you to understand the riches of this as the Gentiles are added to the church. That is, there, there's these people that are way different from you Jews, but there's this, this a richness now about God's mercy and his grace that we get to understand and enjoy and live amongst. So always, always why I've my, my parents were called here in 1982. It's, it's almost 40 years now. You know, the joy of living at Ames and living as part of this church is you, you get to know so many different people of so many different nationalities, right? You have people coming from, from Africa and from Asia, from Europe, and they're coming to know Christ and you're getting to know them. You know, what's amazing is just they're, the the, the amazing perspective they have on Jesus and how he saved them and what he's done and, and the blessing it is to hear their stories, to understand the joy they have in Christ and understand how that impacts you. Like, it, it helps you understand it's not all about me right here in Ames, Iowa. This is, it's not even all about the U, United States of America. This is God working in our entire world, calling out a people to his name. The riches of that, the richness of that. And Paul is saying here, man, do you understand? I, I want you to grasp the riches of this. If you, if you don't grasp the riches of this, you really can't relate to God well, is his point, actually. You're, you're like you, if you don't get this, your eyes aren't opened. You don't really understand God and how great he is and how marvel it is to be related to him. Now he's going to go on in Ephesians chapter 2 and, and talk about that in more detail. But I just want you to kind of explore this just a little bit more because, again, if you think every civilization has, had always has threats, Threats that are a problem to the civilization. In, in the Romans' days, it was the, the barbarians, right? 
And barbarians were the groups on the outside of the empire that were always attacking the empire in various ways. And people were afraid that the Roman Empire would fall to the barbarians, which eventually it did, in a sense. But in our day, there are always threats, and depending on who you talk to, the threat is different, right? It's not barbarian, it might be global warming, or it might be uh, um, socialism, or it might be um, COVID, or it might be, you know, name your threat to civilization. But Paul understands the gospel and understands the wealth of the gospel enough that in Galatians he says, we're all one in Christ. Jews, Greeks, and barbarians. Like the people who you thought were a threat, they're actually under God's control and under his call to himself. Even barbarians can be called to be Christians. If, if we view people as threats, we, as Paul ends Ephesians, are wrestling against flesh and blood rather against principalities and powers, against the spiritual forces of wickedness. You see, the hope of the gospel is not because we are right, like I know the threat, and we're going to quash, squash it. And, and we, we, we spend so much energy trying to identify threats and, and figuring out if I'm right about the threat. And, oh, I've got this person who says I'm right about the threat, so I am right about the threat. And this person over here, he thinks I'm right about the threat. And we, we, we put so much energy into being right rather than looking at the gospel and realizing it helps us save ourselves, it helps, he saves us from our own self-righteousness. You realize the gospel is about a king who didn't defend his rightness. He went to the cross and saved those he loved, not because he had to defend his rightness, but because he loved us. And I'm afraid in today's world, and especially in the church, instead of treasuring the riches we have in God's inheritance in the saints, we instead trash our brothers and sisters because they disagree with us. We sit here and despise well, they're different from me. They think differently on this issue than me. So they're not worth whatever. Do you realize that those people are God's inheritance? That he has called them to himself. He has chosen them as his own. And he is transforming them into glorious displays of his grace. And yes, they may be different from you. They may think different than you. But God is at work in their life just as much as he is in yours. And if we don't treasure, if we don't understand the, the amazing richness we have in the saints, it's hard to relate to God.
Why? Well, it's hard to relate to anyone when you don't love what they love, right? You know, I got friends who are interested in canoeing. I like canoeing, so we're friends, you know. If they didn't like canoeing, maybe we wouldn't be as close of friends, right? But again, we come back and we say, well, what does God love? And he's like, I love these people. I've, I sent my son for them. I, I've called them to myself. I'm delighting in them. Paul uses, uh, I was reading something from John Piper uh, last night, and he was talking about how we talk about progressive sanctification. That is that God is making us more and more like Christ. But it, in some sense, it's also progressive glorification. That is, God is making us more and more beautiful and, and precious and amazing. Why? Because one day we're going to stand as lights and trophies of God's grace. And God doesn't make junk, right? So, but, but instead, we focus on, well, this person said this, and, and there are these kind of issues, and, and they're just not worth the effort when God's like, but I sent my son to die for them. <laughs> they're worth my grace. Do you treasure it? It doesn't mean you have to agree. I, I'm not saying we have to just say, okay, we're, ne- we're never going to disagree. We're always just going to keep our mouth shut and just keep every. No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is we treasure the grace of God that's found in one another. That we seek the, the, the blessing and the encouragement of one another. That we treasure the, the amazing thing that, that we are a part of this group. That God loved us and to make us a part of. You realize that no matter who you meet, whether they're from Ames, Iowa, or they're from Timbuktu, Mali, or they're from London, England, God could be calling them to himself. They are a part, could be a part of what God is doing. They could be in a sense, your spiritual brother or sister in Christ. It doesn't, no ma- it doesn't matter where they're from when you meet them. What matters is what God is doing in your life and in their life. And so my plea to you is do you want to relate to God well? Do you, do you want to see God at work? Well, then treasure God's people. See the riches that you have in the people of God. How can you do that better? Well, he then goes into his last point, which is the immeasurable greatness of his power. The immeasurable greatness of his power. Notice Again, what he says, and he spends the most time on this. I'll just read it for you again. I've got to find the right verse. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And I frankly, I don't have time to go through all the details of this. 
But just, just to make this point, again, just as riches are different in their society, so power is different in their society. They, they had, in some ways, they had no problem, Greeks would have had no problem with the idea of someone rising from the dead, as much as the idea that the, the established order could be changed. And what, what Paul says here is God has the power enough, we, we fixate on power to take someone from death to life, that's amazing. But Paul spends most of his time saying, look, God changed the, the, the order of things. He's, he's taking you from being peons, from being nobodies, to seated at the right hand of, of Christ, with him at, who is seated at the right hand of God forever. The, the order of things has changed. You're no longer nobody. And to the Greek mind, that is stunning. That we could sit with the emperor. (laughs) That we could be involved in what the king is doing. But that's exactly what he's saying here. And he's saying, this is the power that is at work in us. And when we get to Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10, and we see how we're made alive, again, he emphasizes not just that we're alive, but that we're, again, seated at with Christ in the heavenlies. We're like, this is our position now. You see, position in that society couldn't change. In our society, positions change all the time, you know. But in that society, position didn't change, but God is at work. And if that's true, again, what shall we say to these things, Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? This is the power at work. So let's, it almost, in a sense, it almost works backwards. Look at the power God has done in your life. He's taking you from death to life, giving you eternal life, and he's, he's changed your position in the world. And because that's true, let's back up. Notice the riches of his inheritance in the saints. Look at all the people he's done this to, and we get to be part of this group together. And in the riches of knowing people from every tribe and tongue and nation and enjoying that and working with that and, and, and living in that kind of group. And if that's true, then let's talk about then the hope that we have. This is the father of glory. He's just not interested in his own glory. He's interested in all of us receiving glory and enjoying his glory together forever. And I realize, because I, I'm, I'm in this boat with you, I, on a daily basis, do I get this? Nah. I got this problem, and I got these kids to raise, and I got this mortgage payment to make, and I've got, I can list, yeah, how many problems do I have? Do I know God's amongst it? Kind of. But my eyes don't see like I should that I have hope that God is at work in my circumstances, that I have people I can rest in and rejoice with, that I have a power at work in my life. 
But this is our reality. This is what we need to grasp. And we, and we can't grasp it on our own. We need to pray that we, we pray for one another, as Paul prayed for us, ultimately, that we, that our eyes would see it. That you have hope. You are, as Paul just said, you're chosen. You're adopted. You're redeemed. God has made known his plans for the ages to you. You are destined. You have an inheritance that no one can take away. And you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. The down payment of all of that coming true. And because that's true, you have hope. No matter the circumstances this week, no matter what is going on, every day and every hour of that day, you have hope. God is at work. God is doing things you don't understand. God is doing things that you won't see yet. But he is at work, and his power is at work in you, and he will not quit. So will you rejoice in that hope? Will you let your eyes see it, so to speak? <laughs> will you ask God to help you see it? That, that would be my challenge, in a sense, to you, is these are the anchors to your souls. And would you just take some time this week and say, God, open my eyes to the hope I have. Open my eyes to see th th that you're at work in my life. Not because I can see specific details, but just to see with spiritual eyes and realize you are at work. Just take five, ten minutes, fifteen minutes, and just sit quietly and say, God, I want to see it. I want to have hope. I want to know you're at work. I want to experience those riches of the inheritance in the saints, and I want to know you and your power at work in my life. There is no better identity but to rest in what God is doing in your life. Not to live in tension, fighting over everything, but just to rest in what God is doing, to pray and say, God, I know you're at work. Help me to see it. Will you rest in his hope? Will you rejoice in his hope? I know I can't force you to do it, but I can tell you, Pray for it. And you know what? God, that's an answer. God, that's a prayer God wants to answer. <laughs> he wants to help you to see what he's doing. And he wants to give you hope. As Paul says in Romans chapter 15, May the God of hope fill you all with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope abound in hope this week. He's a great God, and he's not done yet. Heavenly Father, help us to have hope. We live in a dark world, but you are still at work. You are not done. Christ will return. And the power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him at your right hand is the same power at work in our lives 
creating the same riches that you have in giving that to us. And because of that, we can have hope. And it doesn't need to be this all-powerful, all-overwhelming hope. It's just hope like the seed of a mustard seed. Saying, God, I, I, I know you're here. I know you're doing something good. Help me to walk with you. Oh, Lord. May the people in this room, the people online, may they know your hope this week. In your son's name, amen.